our number one um, goal is how we can reduce the pain to a customer, their pain on something, and how we can provide a service to them. Um, we need to be in the service business and make their life easier for them. That's what we provide them as manufacturer today. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Today's show is the first episode of a multi-part series about how machining companies acquire new work. Our guest is Federico Veneziano, CFO and COO of American Micro, a precision machining company in Batavia, Ohio. Federico says one of his key strategies for getting new customers is proving to them his company will minimize the problems that are bound to occur in most manufacturing jobs. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I am very honored to have my good friend Federico Veneziano, COO and CFO of American Micro, back on the show. It's so good to have you coming on the show again. Thank you, Federico. Oh, thank you, Noah, for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's always a pleasure to discuss some of the topics that we discuss in our environment, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, today we're starting a new season, and it's all about getting work. How does a machining company get new jobs? How do you sell? Maybe for a lot of listeners, some of this stuff is going to be just obvious things but for me it's it's a whole it's a whole nother world that's i sort of know is going on but a lot of it is mysterious and i'm not going to ask federico necessarily to go through the entire 101 of start to finish how you get a job but i want to know how he gets work for american micro as a company acquires it and i know that federico takes somewhat of a hands-on approach in acquiring work for American Micro, wouldn't you say? Yes, uh, I will say that I'm intimately involved in the selling process and um, things uh, to bring back what you were just saying, times have changed and um, it's a little bit different today. The selling process, what it was maybe even 15 years ago, especially with the, pres- with the presence of uh, social media, the presence of uh, new technology. Right. Selling process is totally different. Before, there were more an approach on face-to-face. Now you can um, get jobs even without meeting face-to-face with the customer. I still prefer the face-to-face because they give you a little bit of more personal touch. 
And I think um, as human, we still love that kind of um, position. I agree. And I think right now we're in a time where in a way people are craving that. I'm going to try to really delve into that with you. First, before we go any further, I want to just give people just an overview of American Micro so they know where you're coming from. Give me the the two-minute uh, version of uh, Summarize American Micro. It's a pretty good-sized company, a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of things going on, so I think it's important to get the context. Yes, um, I can start with the saying the company was founded in 1957. Um, we are a machining company, manufacturer, mostly turning, but we do also some milling at this point. We offer services to different industry, mainly to the automotive industry, aerospace, defense, and some of the medical, and some of the industrial services too, but um, depending how you look at, that can be attached to any kind of industry that I say prior to saying industrial. Um, as a company, we are located in Batavia, Ohio, just outside Cincinnati. We have about 140,000 square foot facility, and we have, um, always depend on the time, I'm between 150 and 200 employees. And uh, we do also have a um, location um, outside of the U.S. We have a location from 2005 in China, where we have about 40,000 square feet and uh, about 100 employees there. Wow. And you travel to China quite a bit, or you or you, or you were. Uh, I, I, <laughs> yes, you're, you're correct. Uh, we can talk it in the past. Uh, due to the coronavirus, we were um, avoiding the fact to go in China just because there was difficulties to travel during that time. And, and it's still some... It's get difficult to travel to another state. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, Not so much now, uh, but... It's kind of interesting because as you were alluding before, I'm very involved in the sales process. So I, I do extensive travel. And, but in the past year, I, I didn't travel anywhere. So I did stay at the company. And then actually was also good to kind of get re-engaged with some of the internal processes and change a little bit how you do business because due to coronavirus, it changed completely how you do business and how you approach and also how the the workforce approach work is a totally new new venue at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Give me the the two-minute life story on you, just so people understand. When did you come to the United States? 2004. 2004. And you came because you were working for DMG? Yes. At that time, I was working at DMG. And then you were like head technician? Yes. um, I did a little bit of uh, everything for DMG from technical support service some sales, process engineering, from mechanical service, electronic service, software. I love that kind of industry, and it was awesome for me to work for that company. And I worked for them for a extensive period of time, and I was able to see the world and different culture and different way to approach business, and I was very blessed for that. And that's how you came in contact with American Micro? Yes, American Micro was a customer of DMG about... 2004, they bought um, GMC machine and then the machine arrived at the beginning of 2005. And that was one of my first projects that I approached when I came to work for DMG here in Chicago. I see. 
Very good. Okay. So you are a pretty worldly person. You are a hands-on person, clearly, uh, with machines, with dealing with customers, etc. Now let's dig into how you do some of your sales strategy at American Micro. Uh, what are the biggest sectors right now for American Micro? What are the most significant things going on for the company right now? With some pain, I have to say that uh, aerospace is probably one of our biggest sector in the company. But because of the commercial aerospace uh, business, that portion is, um, is going through some pain. But um, we also do automotive, and um, I say automotive loosely because we do like more specialized stuff like uh, fuel diesel component for the fuel system. Um, we do um, part for different kind of um, customer for the steering pumps from assembly, sub-assembly and components. So more like specialized product and a very high tolerance. And, and then defense is becoming one of our biggest sector at this point they are going strong and um, we are pretty blessed from that industry right now interesting we do a little bit of medical but medical for us is not probably our core competency just because i believe the medical industry is very difficult to penetrate just because there is um, a lot of company were established a long time ago and and from what i see Medical company like to do business with company they are already established in that. So usually you can have some success if you buy in to a, another business that may be selling for different reason, and uh, so you gain some of those customer. Right now, a little bit what is happening also there is a lot of new company that they are um, establishing or new company in the medical sector, and that allow us a little bit to penetrate the market, but it's still very, very little and has a um, very long process. Yeah, it's 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 really dependent on knowing the right person, having the right hookup to get in there. Yes, I will say so. Interesting. So ways that you get work, you were alluding to sort of the more traditional styles of finding work for a machining company and how things are changing. Tell me your, your, your immediate thoughts on that. Let me start with the, our traditional approach. First of all, we try to stay in the industry and um, try to gain work for product that we know really well and we can uh, provide a good service. So usually we do a study of the, of the market and uh, try to understand which company they need that service. And then we start to try to make contact with those companies, try to make contact with the uh, buyers or engineers and uh, through via email, via call, depends on company prefer a different method to contact them. As, uh, as we get in contact with them, then we try to establish a date where we can meet and then we can give them a presentation where we can show our expertise uh, what we have at American Micro, what kind of services we can provide and just, just beyond a little bit the standard just manufacture, but some value added other stuff that we can do. So rewind a second. So you're saying, okay, you know, 
we think we have a lot of the right equipment and staff to be doing stuff, for instance, for these specific automotive components. Then what you have databases like Dunn and Bradstreet databases, you go in and you find companies that are using that and then you hunt the people down. How do you first even like find the companies to seek out before you even, you know, call them up and ask to go visit them? Again, first of all, we're going to try to find out what kind of product or what kind of assembly we want to go after. And after that, okay, now that we define that, now we can do a research. There is database online that you can find the information. Now you find the name of the company. And then there is other tool, even just LinkedIn. If you want to use it as an example, you try to find who's the right person there to talk to and try to make a contact with them and try to offer some time to do a presentation to them and see if you can make them aware that um, there is another company that can provide their service uh, and they can provide them something that might, they are maybe in pain at that point and um, they can provide solution. At the end of the day, I think if you can provide solution to the customer, they'd be willing to test and um, try to see if you can make that for them. I see. So you call them up and you see, like, is there a part that they're just not getting the right results they want? Maybe they're trying to make it themselves or maybe they have some other vendor that's just not getting the right tolerance, not getting the right cycle times they want. So you call them up to try to dig for that, to see what you can do for them that they're not getting from what they have already? Yes. And um, I want to also specifically said that uh, we try to stay away to just try to offer that we can make it for cheaper than somebody else. Sure. I think that's the wrong approach and that also kind of water down or dilute the value of manufacturing and it changed the market for the worse. I, I, we can see already with the globalization that a lot of buyers, they say, hey, I can go buy the same part in um, China or Mexico for a much lesser price and then they don't realize that, that with that they are just changing the market dynamic and um, when they are not being able to get that part with the same quality or they have more problems than they had before now their expectation is to come back to the original manufacturer or the manufacturer in, uh, in the states and say okay now my expectation is you do it for that price now you just ruin the market having somebody do it for cheap it's not always actually cheaper no it's cheaper at the beginning, but it's going to come back. At the end of the day, there is a value to to the parts that we make. There is a reason why there is a need for quality part, especially when you get in the in, in the industry like aerospace and defense. I'm, I'm really worried for the, for the future sometimes because uh, that kind of um, idea to be able to find product made cheaper is going to change the quality of the part. And when you're talking about aerospace and, and defense, now you you have to take in consideration that you are playing now in an um, industry where uh, the life of people is part of it. So, And that's uh, more important than j- just the dollar. Unbelievable. And in the end, it's all... <laughs> you end up paying for it one way or another, right? Yes. Uh, like I said, uh, at the end of the day, the value... We don't need to name any companies, but, you know... Yeah, correct. Okay, so in the past, you've called these companies, you've sought them out, decided you could see, all right, there's this one part that maybe we'd be a good candidate to make. And then would you and your colleagues then just get on the road and go see them? Uh, how How does this all go down? 
Yeah, if we if we can um, have the opportunity to, to have an audience at the, at the customer, we love to go on site and um, give them the time to, first of all, them to know us. Yeah. But, um, but most is for us to know them and understand, hey, what's the pain they are going through that in at that moment? Is, is that what is creating a more headache? Because at the end of the day, as an industry, we all have some pain in what we do every day. And uh, it would be nice to find a supplier that can help you through that. That's our number, I think, our number one value that we provide to customers, try to reduce the pain that they're going through for, for different reasons. Right. That makes sense because there's so many little variables and things will go wrong. And so if you can have somebody that you can talk to and work it out that you know is a good problem solver and easy to work with, that's a tremendous value proposition than, oh, I just bought an index. I'll crush it, you know, or, oh, I pay my people $10 an hour. I can whip it out faster than you. Yes, that's um that's another also another point that's a, and that's a personal preference. I'm not saying right, wrong, or indifferent is that um, I prefer technical sales than a just pure selling process because sometimes I think there is promises that get made without knowing the full picture, and that's a little bit like uh, if you look in like a twenty years ago, it's kind of what everything was about. But again, when you look in 20, 30 years ago, there was a different kind. Tell me more what you mean by that technical sales. You're saying the person selling should know about making the part. Is that what you're saying? Yes, because uh, at that point, there is no promises made of things that can be done that cannot, they are not really vetted at that point yet. Yes. I, I saw many salespeople say, hey, we can do this, we can do that. And uh, in different industry, I saw- Machine tool salespeople do that too. Oh. Oh, they are the best in that kind of category. We won't name any names. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, it's kind of an interesting approach, but uh, there was a time that that uh, was uh, good enough and then there was a lot of um, value in the part that you can um, provide that kind of um, promises, even if you were not getting 100% to that target there was enough margin to be able to still make in the part in the different methods and uh, and still be profitable. Today, there is not that room to do so. So when you go there, you, you need to know what, the, what you're speaking about and what you're selling. It seems like to me, that would be one of the main reasons why it would be so important for you specifically to come because you're going to be able to like look at the part and know whether or not it makes sense to do it like this I mean, when you talk to you, you know, all right, this guy like knows exactly how it's being made. He's not fudging it. So I could see that that being that being pretty persuasive. Yeah. Yes. Again, it's not that um, I'm different or better equipped. It's just uh, my life experience allow me to see those things and how you make the part, how you process the part, how you study a part. So mm -hmm. and um, and that, that gives me a lot of value in front of the customer. What about when you're selling in China or, or getting people to make stuff for you in China? Selling China is a totally different uh, approach. We are talking about apples and pears. I'm, I'm talking totally, di <laughs> totally different kind of situation. Um, in China, you have a total um, more like online bidding kind of situation. Online bidding, okay. Yes, and is that's kind of... Um, Kind of difficult because that kind of uh, is not related to what you can provide, but is who can make it cheaper. But um, in our case, we are um, 
kind of set up a little bit different because being a foreign company, um, we are not as tied to the um, Chinese companies. Chinese company like to do business with Chinese. Foreign company, they do business with the other foreign company present in China. That's how it works there. And with that, you still have some opportunity to do like in-person meeting and that allow you to establish some relationship. But through the process and how they do process, payment terms and everything is a totally different structure. And it sounds I, kind of scary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't want to even get into the discussion at this moment in time. <laughs> you know, I, I'm often been a school of negotiation. Hey, you know, you're, you're Italian. You like to haggle. We've wrangled before. When, when you are negotiating work for a job. Yes. I think it's more transparent, it seems like. Oh, this is a part. It should be worth X, whatever. But sometimes it's a little bit more unknown what a part should be worth. Uh, maybe people aren't used to multi-spindles or a different kind of equipment or whatever. Who names price first? How do they figure that out? I'm sure it's not one fits all, but how does it often go down? First of all, we have to divide the in two different categories. Is that a product that is an ongoing product? It's been already established or this is a new product? Usually. Let's start with our old product that is already produced by somebody else and they need, for any reason, they need the supplier somewhere else. And they, the situation there is um, the buyer had two trainer thoughts. Some buyers is give you at the beginning say, hey, my target price is, is $1 just to use just a number. And some other buyers say, hey, I have an expectation what the target price should be, but in order for me to make sure I get the best price I can from you. I'm not going to tell you that until you provide me a quote and uh, I see what you stand against that set target price. And I'm in the trainer talks that I have a target price. It's a really a good thing because again, and that's come a little bit with experiences. Let's say you have to make part X that uh, right off the bat, I can see that the part probably will cost around $2, right? And the customer say, hey, my target price is $1. At that point in time, hey, let's don't waste anybody's time. I, I, I know we cannot get there. Right, right. The problem is then in the other side, when there is no target pricing given because they want to see what you can do for them, they say, okay, give me a quote. You provide the quote. Let's say the quote now is $2. And that expectation, it was $1. And the problem become is that target pricing was set already with an expectation to reduce their cost. They try to negotiate it with you in order to gain that because maybe they really need that price because even our customer, they have their customer themselves and uh, they get the price pressures too. So they say, okay, in this system, I need to reduce this part, a dollar, this other part, 50 cent. And... So they have a bigger picture that we don't see. And uh, at the point they start to negotiate because they know already that they cannot get it for the price from, from somebody else. And then is where I believe the market is getting a little bit an unfair treatment because they keep the price pressure against something that cannot be produced for the price is just, again, ruining the market because as you keep pushing through the different supplier, you're going to find yourself, somebody's going to say, yes, I can make it. Maybe again, situation where you have a traditional salesperson, they are just there to gain the business because there is a commission related to that. So, so you don't use any outside salespeople? 
We do, but um, we can we can talk what that look like because there is some qualification to do. You cannot just use the sales rep just for the sake to get sales rep. Have you guys ever used a manufacturer's rep? We use manufacturer's reps and we had a mix of result with them. First of all, again, this has come back up from traditional sales system to more understanding what you do and what, what you can provide. Again, if you just hire somebody that is a manufacturing rep and um, they um, just go out, they're going to find a lot of opportunities for you, but not find a lot of works because, again, they make money selling product. doesn't matter what they sell. They're trying to close the deal. They don't care good, bad, and indifferent. They are just trying to reach the point that they sell product and you pay them the commission. So it sounds like you're not using one right now. I actually, we are doing that, but we are using kind of a manufacturer rep that uh, does things a little bit different and um, allow them to know our company very well. They are coming on site. They have even um, internal email with us. They are like they're working for us, but they are just providing a service. So they're engineers. The manufacturer's rep is an engineer. Yes. We may be talking about the same one that we know of. Maybe. I just We just leave a name alone at this point. And the other thing is that another problem with the manufacturing rep is also their portfolio of um, manufacturing company. Um, the people that we try to do business as manufacturing rep, they we don't have conflict of interest that they have us that can provide the service and other 10 companies they provide. We are the only company that they can specifically um, provide certain parts and certain uh, services where when you get manufacturer's rep, again, they have a 10 company to choose. Now you're becoming a quoting house. They, you just receive a quote. Uh, that is a very difficult position that they are put in. Yes. So you're saying that your manufacturer's rep tells you they have no other client that is doing a similar part as you? Yes, correct. They may be, we may be split the work like uh, size-wise. Let's say we do, everything is below two inches in diameter. Let's call it like that. So another company, not saying they don't have any other manufacturing company, but that we will not overlap in the, on the same kind of uh, thing. We are, there is guideline that we set that allow us to don't just, so even then when they found a, a potential customer, that is a part that there is no question. Hey, I'm, who I need to go to? Oh, this is a ancient recorder. Oh, America Macro can do it because it's a part in that envelope of the, and their scope of work. So it's very nice. And we are having a very good success with that. How, what kind of commission does a manufacturer's rep get? It's very dependent on the size of the work, right? There is the standard 5 to 3% range, but dependent. On, and even that today with the, all the price pressure, 3 to 5% is a big number to swallow for a customer or for a supplier because at the end of the day, the money has to come from somewhere. It has to come out of somewhere. That's true. What is What is more difficult, to find somebody to make parts for you or for you to find somebody to make parts for? I think um, it, it depends, but I will say that they kind of uh, leaning toward what that is more difficult for us to find people to do part for. It's more difficult for us to find customer. I think that's where sales rep 
again, there is some pros for them where they have this huge network and they already have the, all the connection on those businesses they already established. So it's easier for them to make a connection. Well, if you don't have a connection, Today is very difficult to sometimes penetrate a company. Right, because it's big and there's lots of people to go through. And Yes. So, but once the sales rep makes the connection, you still have to go and prove it and close the deal. Yes. Right. You, usually, yes. The sales rep made the first contact, figured out that, that there is an opportunity there and uh, you provide a quote. And at that point, the sales rep work finished now. You need to, as if you win the work, you need to start to go to the customer and start to establish that relationship that I think is kind of late because at that point you don't know the customer very well other than you provide them a quote. <laughs> it's an interesting process. but uh, It is an interesting process. Not saying that it doesn't work. It's just different training thoughts. My preferences, again, is, as I said it before, our number one um, goal is how we can reduce the pain to a customer, their pain on something, and how we can provide a service to them. Um, we need to be in the service business and make their life easier for them. That's what we provide in this manufacturer today. Right. And even if you're going to charge a few more cents, if people know that you'll be able to get the job done, then hopefully they'll have the sense to pay for it. And, I, and then you say before, after all is said and done, is the, the total cost of ownership that people don't realize there is, is at the end of the day, is not just the price of the part itself at that moment, is from all manufacturer all the way to when you, they install it to their whatever system they have, how much really totally cost to them due to quality, on-time delivery, due to so many things that they can be influences that price through the process. Sure. Absolutely. Okay, this is one of my favorite little conundrum chicken of the egg things. Do you buy a machine before you get the work or do you buy it? Do you get the machine after you get the work? In a perfect world. <laughs> I think you buy the machine. Okay, there is, first of all, there is a couple of train of thoughts there too. First of all, is some product doesn't allow you to put a price of a machine. Again, money doesn't generate from nothing. So you have to Somewhat, if you buy a new machine, the machine they have to start to pay for. And um, so is the price of the part that's going to be influenced by, uh, the, from the cost of the machine. A lot of product, because of the price pressure that there is, there is no space to buy a machine. So if you have a machine, they are underutilized. You try to find product that is specific, uh, working very well for that kind of equipment. But in the perfect world, if there is money, is not an issue. You find the job, the job is done right. And uh, you say, okay, for doing this kind of part, we need to establish this process for this process, this the right equipment. But see, isn't that, the, isn't that riskier though? Because then if the job falls through, you end up with this piece of equipment and then you bought it specifically just for that work? It's riskier if you, you need to establish some, um, some guideline too, right? You're not just uh, taking the job and uh, off for the best. You need to somewhat sign a long-term deal that this could be like a three to five years, 10 years, whatever that is allowed to be for that project. But the risk is always there. So, but that's where you need to be good enough to lower the risk with your knowledge and your expertise. But um, you have to risk mitigate the situation with uh, like a long-term agreement. Before 
a lot of customers stayed away to try. Again, you go back 15, 20 years ago, a lot of people didn't like to sign long-term agreement. Uh, today is uh, more, I think it's more accepted that. Where do you uh, see 2021? It seems like with our customers, everybody's, everybody's saying it's looking great. For us, for us, is uh, not looking great yet. Is uh, going in the right direction, um, but I do believe because we are heavy in the aerospace and the commercial aerospace. But I do believe that that is going to change coming August. I, I do believe ba- based on our market research and our market um, understanding, looks like that's when it's really going to ramp up and come back. Um, other industry, they are already looking great and they are already moving very good. To me, it was very surprising during this process that automotive took a hit at the beginning of the coronavirus situation, but then they came they came back really, really strong. And uh, yes, where normally when there is an economic downturn, automotive is the one that suffered the most. This time, I think automotive was the one that suffered the least. The least. Do you have anything else to say on the subject of selling? Just how you're feeling about things going right now? Um, I think uh, selling is an important process on manufacturing. We just need to change how we do business. And um, I I want to kind of, um, not only American Micro, but the, all the other manufacturing company, I think we can become smarter how we do business and how we do business together. I think there can be done a collaboration within company that we don't fight against each other and try to get a work. I think there is a space for everybody. We just need to become smarter like um, big corporation do. We need to do it too. And then we need to see how we can collaborate with certain things that we are not ruining the market just uh, to say yes and make a part cheaper so we can gain more work and um, and see if we can use... What do you mean by collaborate like big corporation? What I'm saying with that is um, as a smaller company, as smaller businesses, we can collaborate again with the same kind of... Uh, idea of the sales rep that we are working with we say okay let's say we establish um i loosely call it a partnership between like three four company that they can provide different services and that we can go um provide these services to like an array of customers but uh, we don't overlapping what we can provide so we don't have that kind of competitive behavior against each other but uh, we go there in a collaboration like this and then let's say there is a there is big corporation today. They love to give you like a big package uh, of parts to quote. And usually you try to quote all of them, even if it's uh, some, they fall out of your spectrum of things that you can provide. And maybe if you go there in the, like three, four company, Hey, I can provide this portion. You can provide that portion. We provide a very good service to the customer. We provide something very competitive at that point, because being our core competency at that time, I think can be done in a much better fashion and uh, collaborate would be a much easier way than try to fight for the same boat. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. 
Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. 